Well, good morning, beloved. Let's behold God's living word by turning to Colossians chapter 2. And as Courtney just read, we'll be in 16 through 23 as we close out chapter 2 today. That's page 984 uh, in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to follow along with us. I, I feel the need to give an AC update if I could, an air conditioning update. By God's grace, it feels so good in here today. If you were here yesterday, we had a service um, for a beloved uh, who had, had departed from us, and it was hot. And so we're kind of, uh, every day right now is kind of touch and go, so just bear with us. Uh, even this week, we're going to be talking about contingency plans and what it looks like for us if the AC goes out before it's fully fixed. But I wanted to let you know today how grateful the staff is for how you as the congregation has responded so gently, so kindly, so encouragingly. And so just want to say that uh, to you before we get going today. Uh, today we'll be talking about legalism. And as we've been discussing the false teachers throughout the last several weeks, uh, most notably last week as Paul is giving uh, his warnings to the church at Colossians uh, of, of being careful not to fall into false teaching. There's a word I want to give to you today. It's called syncretism. And this is what's going on in the church at Colossae, syncretism. Uh, it is the blending of two religions or two cultures into one. It's an amalgamation of different ideas that come together. And this is exactly what's going on at the church at Colossae. We have these Jewish teachings that have reared up and have shown themselves inside the church, or at least attacking the church. As well, we see these pagan or mystic, these mystical teachings that are also a part of this. And today we'll see that these are kind of rooted in legalism. And legalism is adding anything to the gospel. As we've said before, it's not that the false teachers were denouncing Jesus. They just didn't think Jesus was enough. And so you have to do these things, they said, in order to really enjoy the fulfillment that we have in Christ. And as Paul was teaching us in the first chapter of the book of Colossians, it was Christ he proclaimed and he warned everyone and he taught everyone in verse 28 of, of chapter 1. And this is exactly what he's doing in our passage today. He is warning the church of false teaching and specifically the teaching of legalism. If you do have your Bibles, go to verse 16 and put your finger on that word, therefore. That therefore is there for a reason, and it typically has to do with what we just talked about. And last week, we talked about uh, the first warning that Paul gives, let no one take you captive from empty philosophy and deceit. And then he goes on to talk about the all-sufficient Christ. The Christ who circumcises the heart with his own hands. No circumcision is needed anymore, made by human hands. This is the Christ that we are baptized with, identified with. This is the Christ who raised us from the dead. And he is the Christ who has made us alive by the same power that raised him from the dead. And how did he do this? Well, he took the legal demand that stood against us at the cross and he nailed it there. And he left it there. And this is how he made us alive. And in doing so, he conquered every single enemy that was against him. Therefore, that's where we are in the text today. 
If I had a summary for you as to what this passage is going to say, and then also where we're going, this would be it. Because Jesus is sufficient in all the ways we just acknowledged, we are free from legalistic requirements and empty religion. I'm going to say that again. Because Jesus is sufficient, we are free from legalistic requirements and empty religion. These false teachers had come barging in, attempting to barge in to the doors of their church with this syncretistic religion, this pagan and Jewish teachings with its roots in legalism. And let me tell you this, they were trying to add to Jesus, and that is not any different than the world we live in today. We see attempts at every turn of how Jesus isn't quite sufficient. And so, therefore, we must add to him. We see this all over the place. Perhaps you've heard it called Jesus plus theology. We want to make sure that we are aware that this is real. And it has two tenets kind of baked into it. The first is this, that Jesus is not sufficient. And the second tenet is this, that you actually have the power to do something about it. Both of those are obviously false. And Paul deals with those today in this text. In fact, he destroys the argument. It's actually beautiful to see in the text. He does so logically and he does so faithfully. And as always, as Paul does, he does so biblically. So that's what we're going to look at today. And here are the three points to the text that we can get into before we get to them. Because Jesus is sufficient, the first thing we see, we are free from legalistic requirements. We're going to find this in verses 16 and 17. Because Jesus is sufficient, we are also free from mysticism. This is the pagan portion of the teaching that was trying to enter Colossae, these extra-biblical experiences or events that they were saying, you must uh, enjoy these, you must participate in these in order to be called a mature Christian. And then the third is this, because Jesus is sufficient, we are free from man-made regulations, period. And that's in verses 20 through 23. So look with me in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this is our first point today, found in those two verses. Because Jesus is sufficient, we are free from legalistic requirements. So in verse 16, we see Paul's second warning. Last week was Paul's first warning, let no one take you captive by empty philosophy. The second one is here, let no one pass judgment on you. That means to condemn you based on what you are doing. This is the judgment that we are not ever to participate in. We're never to condemn someone based on what they do. And in this case, It's questions of food and drink and with regard to festival and new moons and Sabbath. And this is the Jewish portion of the false teaching that was trying to enter the church. The false teachers were saying, if you want to progress in the fullness of grace, in the full Christian walk, you must not participate in these dietary laws, going back to some of the dietary laws of the Old Testament, and you must participate 
in these special days. And he lists out some special days there. Festivals, Jewish festivals, feasts, the Sabbath itself. This is at the very heart legalism as defined by Paul. And legalism at its roots tries to seek forgiveness and justification based on obedience, based on what you do, and based on what you don't do. This is where we see these things beginning to flirt or affect the church in some way. And this created a huge division in the church. When the Messiah came and fulfilled the law, and, and then the Jewish people were still wondering what to do with the law, it was very hard for them to reconcile what it meant that Jesus came. What were they still supposed to do in order to be saved? And this really is the heart of what's going on. We see this in the book of Galatians. We see this throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. We see this in the book of Acts. This is the whole point of the, of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Paul even addresses this in Romans 14. This is something that the church is trying to reconcile. And right here, the Colossians are having to deal with it too. Now, in Romans 14, we do see that there's a difference of opinion. And we're going to get to Romans 14 towards the end of the sermon in greater detail. But Paul is simply saying this. There's no longer food that condemns you. There's, there's no longer days that you must adhere to. When Jesus came, everything changed. Not only is he supreme and sufficient in all things, but everything also changed for everyone who is in Christ. So as the false teachers are saying, you must not participate in these dietary rules, and you must participate in these days, Paul is simply saying, especially in Romans 14, he's saying, hey, all these days and all these diets, they're all equal. They all find their, their yes in Jesus. Jesus tries to teach us this in Mark chapter 7 as he is addressing the Pharisees themselves. He says, the Pharisees say, what you put in your body uh, is what defiles you. And Jesus is saying, actually, what you put in your body does not defile defile you but what comes out of your mouth from your heart is what defiles you he's trying to teach them that there's a new defilement that they have totally and utterly missed by their misinterpretations of the law we see in Acts chapter 10 Peter who was a Jew has a fascinating and a fantastic dream and he hears a voice in the dream saying rise Peter kill and eat you no longer are held captive by any dietary requirements, you are able to enjoy all that God has made because Jesus is enough. So when Jesus came, everything changed. Now, we do want to make a note that when Paul and the other New Testament leaders suggest that legalism is wrong, they're not saying that conduct shouldn't be applied morally in our lives. No, in fact, in Colossians 3, 5, all the way through 4, 1, which we'll get to here in a couple of weeks, Paul is laying out a righteous life that we are to live, but we're only to, able to live this life because of Jesus and the work that he has done in our hearts as we have known him, received him, and trusted in him as the Spirit does work in us. 
We see a, a, an example comes to mind in Luke 1, 6. that says, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the mother and father of John the Baptist, uh, it says that they were righteous before God and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes. We see that the law itself is good. It's given to us by God. It was meant to be something helpful to promote worship, to help us to see the very character of God. But what Paul is getting at here, and this is super important for us to understand, if we're going to understand legalism, he's getting at a condition of the heart that's happening inside of these false teachers, a posture, specific motives that they have and reasons why they're adhering to these laws. These teachers were suggesting that they must do these things in order to be holy. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, and this is, gives us such a helpful understanding as to what they are doing here, these false teachers. When Jesus says, their lips honor me, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines that are the commandments of men. And he says in verse 9, you are finding a way to reject the commandments of God and you have established your own commandments. This is what they're doing. They're taking the law of God and they are twisting it to serve their own purposes. They are adding to it. They are making sure that they're getting their own appetites filled, if you were. If we fulfill these things, then we are righteous. And Jesus is saying, you've made all of these things up. An example of this would be found in Mark 2 when Jesus and his disciples are walking along the way and they're picking grain off as they walk and the Pharisees are saying that that's breaking the law. And Jesus points them to 1 Samuel 21 when it's actually David who ate the bread of, of the presence and, and this was actually against the law and he did this on the Sabbath day. And uh, only the the priests of Aaron could eat the bread of presence. And, and Jesus points this out for a specific reason. He's saying, you're not getting mad at David for actually breaking a law that was given in, the, in Leviticus 24, but you're getting mad at us and telling us that we're breaking the law based on a rule that you have established. And he's basically saying, that's not the law. You have misinterpreted the law. And this is a huge component of legalism. So let's think about this. What do all of these diets and days point to? Because that's actually what's going on here. They're talking about dietary laws and they're talking about days. Well, the answer is found in verse 17. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So these diets and days, they're not pointless. They served a point. They all point to being fulfilled in Christ. We no, longer, we no longer observe the Passover as the people of God once did because Jesus is the Passover. We, we no longer observe the Feast of First Fruits because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. Jesus fulfills these things. We're able to enjoy him because he is the bread of life. He's the feast. And they had missed this completely. This in no way disparages the Old Testament. Let me just say that. It helps us to actually interpret the Old Testament. 
because Jesus is the substance. Think about this. We go to the book of Exodus and we marvel at God's power as he delivers Israel from 400 years of slavery. And there's a Passover lamb and anybody who puts the blood over the door, the death angel passes over. And then the power of God is on display further by rushing them through the water and getting them to safety to receive the promised land that he has for them. This is a shadow, though, of the things to come because we know that Christ is the greater exodus. We know that Christ and those who believe in him are delivered from slavery, no longer captives to the things that are keeping them in bondage. And he rushes us and identifies with us in the waters of baptism so that we can walk in a new land where he is our God and we are his people. The Old Testament is helpful to us And it shows us who Christ is. So we don't go backwards. We could take anything away. Write this down in your notes. Don't go backwards, okay? Uh, A couple hundred years ago, if you wanted to get from New York to L.A., you could take a wagon, and it would take you six months to get there if you arrived, right? Today, you can hop on an airplane and it takes you five hours. There's no reason we should ever go backwards, ever. These shadows are a sign. They're a sign for us that point always to Jesus. And so that's the way they are to be observed. Signs are helpful, right? I was driving the other day over here in Grand Prairie and saw the giant Ikea sign that's like towering over the trees. And I was thinking if my wife and I were going to go get furniture, we're not going to just go to the sign with our family and sit around the sign holding hands looking up at the sign. The sign is helpful because the furniture store is right down the road. We don't go and we don't hang out at the signs any longer. We have the substance and his name is Jesus I want you to think about, we think about legalism, what are some of the things that are trapping in your heart that, that you feel that you have to do in order to be proved by God? Do you, do you read your Bible thinking, if I don't read my Bible, God's going to be mad at me? Do you, do, you, do you pray because you're told to pray, not because you long to pray? Do you confess sin because think you're supposed to and if you don't your sin is not forgiven we are called to to repent and to ask for forgiveness and when we do Jesus forgives us but what is the motive behind what you do and that's the question the disciplines that God gives us are helpful for us they're not to be they're not to be made into legalistic requirements that do not save us and I I do want to make a distinction here a huge distinction actually between delightful discipline or or obedience and legalistic performance. We should discipline ourselves and that's exactly what Paul tells Timothy that we should do in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. We're not to just live lives of licentiousness, doing whatever we want, whenever we want and just trusting the grace of God to cover us. We are called to walk according to the path that Christ has laid out for us, both in the law and in the example that Jesus himself gave to us. And we're able to do this because of the powerful work of God in us and not our own standards or our own flesh. 
We are to discipline ourselves. We are to to practice these disciplines. We are to be faithful in these things. And doing so is not legalism if the heart is to glorify God and to know him, to enjoy him. And this is what we must keep in mind. Christ is the substance here. And uh, this is not the only thing that the false teachers are heralding. In fact, Paul gives a third warning in verse 18. Look with me in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on into detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. This brings up our second point to us today. Because Jesus is sufficient, we are free from mysticism. And you might be saying, like, mysticism, it's not really a part of my life. Well, let's get into this and let's see what Paul is talking about here. This is actually another form of legalism that Paul is bringing up. He wants them, you know, the the legalist wants him to do the Jewish law. And then this pagan experience is also important as well. As we see that little word after the first comma in verse 18, they're insisting on this. And so... He says, don't let anyone disqualify you. That's the third warning. It's the same idea as that don't let anyone pass judgment on you. He just seems to be bringing the idea home with more intensity. Don't let anyone rob you from the prize. It could be translated that way. Remember what Paul says in the first chapter of Colossians 1. He says, uh, uh, him we proclaim. And it's him that we continue to proclaim and we continue to do this and we don't shift from the hope of the gospel. And so we want to make sure that we're not ever shifting from the hope of the gospel. And it's interesting. Remember, Paul starts out in Colossians 1.12 and he says, remember, it's God the Father who has qualified you. He's qualified you in Christ. He's basically saying, don't be disqualified by doing the things that the false teachers are telling you to do. Don't add anything to this glorious gospel And they were insistent on this. And what were they specifically insistent on? Well, there's a few things that Paul mentions here. The first is asceticism, promoting ascetic practices. Asceticism was like self-denial, severe self-denial. And the idea is so that one would experience greater understanding and possibly even um, hallucinations, hallucinations, that were religious in nature. And so asceticism actually means humility, but the irony here is that it's wrapped and shrouded in false humility. It's suggesting that you must do these things and it makes you look holy. The passage that comes to mind to me is Matthew chapter six. We see that these false teachers, these Pharisees distorted their faces by fasting in order that they would be seen by men, approved by men, found holy in the sight of men. This is asceticism in a sense. We also see that these Pharisees, these false teachers in Jesus' day, they thought really highly of themselves. Remember in Luke 18, the Pharisee saying, I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector over there. He's like, look at all the things that I do. I, I fast twice a week. I give, everything, I give my tithe to, uh, to you. I, he, lifting and promoting and highlighting the self. 
and taking means that God has given us to do it, but focusing on the self rather than learning and knowing who God is. Now, in no way, shape, or form am I saying that fasting is a bad thing. In fact, it's a gift from the Lord. It's a discipline given to us that we may know God. But it's not to be spent on us. It's to remind us that we are weak when we don't eat. And we need God to provide for us. We don't, we're, we're dust without him. We, we draw near to him and we remember who he is as we are dependent throughout our day. But when you use it to lift up the self in your experience, you've missed the point of a practice such as, as fasting. We also see here the worship of angels. Now, in this context, angels were serving as a purpose to distract from the worship of Christ. We're not entirely sure if the false teachers were suggesting one must worship angels or if one is worshiping with the angels. But either way, they're not worshiping or discussing the one true God and considering the work of Christ in the spirit that has freed them to worship. They're saying you must do these things. You must be a part of these things. Now, we have to remember who's writing this book here. It's the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul got called up to the third heaven. Nobody can write about that except for Paul. And Paul is telling them, hey, don't have the focus be on this worship of angels or these experiences that you can have. And he's kind of refocusing them and showing them that Christ is the reason of all of our worship. Now, this might sound crazy to us today. Be like, yeah, Blair, well, there's not really worship of angels around us. Well, I'd beg to differ. I'd say in the past 10 or 15 years, we have seen an explosion of books on experiences in hell and experiences in heaven. And if you've ever read one of those books or heard one of those testimonies, oftentimes it's not about Christ but about what heaven is like, about what hell is like. Brothers and sisters, that is distracting us from the worship of Christ. I'm not here to tell you whether or not those are true. I have no idea. I do believe that the revelation of God has already been given to us in the scriptures. I do believe that. But the point is this. Those things distract us from the worship of Christ, who is the all-sufficient Savior and King of our church and the world and the cosmos. I want us to think about those things. He, he then goes on and considers visions. And this is kind of just this further idea of the worship of angels and asceticism. As I already mentioned, asceticism, say that ten times, uh, brings you into this idea that you can experience God in a new way. And we see visions and they're, they're experiencing these things. And they're saying, if you don't have this experience then you're not fully experiencing Christ. Okay? Think about that in our own life. If you haven't done this, or if you're not doing that, you're not experiencing Jesus the way that you can. And they're going on into detail right there, as verse 18 tells us, and rambling on about these experiences. And this is still prevalent for us today. Now, it might be shaped a little bit different, differently, but 
if we're honest, do people not crave experience over substance? Do we not long and desire for the, for the, for the experience of something rather than the thing we can't see, who is Jesus, who is the substance? This is a little bit of our struggle today if we're going to be completely honest with our hearts. Emotion over truth. That's, that's something that we, we have to consider. This is, a, this is a trap for us if we're not careful. Now, I'm not saying that emotion is bad. Heavens, no. Emotion was given to us by God. But if Christ is sufficient over all things and he is supreme, then even our emotions are subject to him. All things find their yes in Jesus the Lord. Now, experience by itself, though, does not add to our maturity in Christ. Now, I want to I think about something here, and this might get a little uncomfortable, actually. Have you ever said something like this? I felt God working in that room. I experienced God there. Well, I'm, maybe so. I'm not here to determine whether or not one did or didn't in a room. Let me just say that. But the fruit of God's work is a deeper love of Christ, a deeper love of the Godhead. This is how we know if it's substantial. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Are we growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Or do we find ourselves longing to return back to an experience but not considering the substance of that experience. Brothers and sisters, we worship God not just to get the feels, although feels can happen, but we worship Christ because he is all and sufficient, the one true God of all creation. Now, hear me. If you walk out of this room going, yeah, Blair thinks experience is bad, you're wrong. I'm telling you right now, I don't believe that. I think experience is probably a part of the Christian walk. We've all, any of us who are in Christ have experienced the grace of Christ. And there's an experience to that. I love John Wesley's conversion story. It's incredible. He's, he's, um, he's listening to Luther's preface on the epistle of, the Rome, uh, to, of uh, to Romans. And it's describing God's work in the heart through faith in Christ. And this is what he said. I felt my heart strangely warmed. But then listen to what he goes on to say. I felt I did it in, uh, trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins. Even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. Perhaps you've had a similar experience. I mean, Paul got called up to the third heaven. He was blinded by Christ when he met him on the road to Damascus. Experience is not bad, but the center of the experience ought always to be Christ. And that is the test that we can each give. What is the motive of our worship? What is the motive of what, what it is that we're seeking, even from church? Even when we gather together, is it the, the feeling or is it the Christ? And that's the question we ought to ask ourselves. And notice what this is all rooted in, verse 18. This little uh, quote he says at the very end of 18, puffed up without any reason by his sensuous mind. This is the root of the false teacher's problem. They are prideful and they are arrogant. They are self-righteous. Mysticism, legalism brings up conceit, blows up our head, it makes it large. 
forgets who Christ is, forgets what we are to hold fast to, as we see there in 19. And this is why it's so vital. Paul's warning is found in 19. Hold fast to the head. Who is Christ? These false teachers. Perhaps at one point we're holding on to Christ and then they let go. And they said, there's more, man. We want the experience. We want this worship of angels. We want all these other things. We want to practice these things that actually enslave us. And Paul's like, hold fast. When we hold fast to the head, it is Christ who is the head. And we hold fast to the head because Christ nourishes the whole body, ligaments, and everything that holds us together. He nourishes us. And this is a growth that's given to us by God. The growth that they're going for is done by man. This is growth from God. So we hold fast to the head who is Christ. This is the application for us. If you have a highlighter or a pen, would you just just underline, hold fast to the head who is Christ? Brothers and sisters, our responsibility every single week is to hold fast to the head who is Christ by teaching admonishing, exhorting, rebuking. This is the work right here. He's talking about a deep communion, a fellowship, an intimate walk. Think about your best friend or your spouse. You walk intimately with them. You, you, you talk to them. You listen to them. You're thoughtful of them. You love them. You sacrifice for them. You care for them. This is a deep communion that we have by holding fast to the head is a relationship with Christ, both individually and corporately as the body. And we're gonna talk about this more next week as we get into Colossians 3, one through four, as we set our mind on the things that are above. Lastly, I want us to see, it's finishing out Paul's argument in verse 20. If Christ, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, Why as if you are still alive in the world do you submit to its regulations? And what are the regulations? Well, they're found in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to these things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is the point. This is where we get our third kind of sub-point today. Because Jesus is sufficient, we are free from man-made regulations. Because Jesus is sufficient, we are free from man-made regulations. Look what it says in verse 20. If you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, he's saying don't hold on to those regulations that you're now free from. There's no reason to go back. You're dead in Christ. And then he's... Remember what it said last week? Then he made you alive together with him. Why are you trying to make yourself alive? And how are they trying to make themselves alive? By not handling this and not tasting that and not touching this. Beloved, these are chains that we put, that they're putting on the church at Colossae and that, let's be honest, that we put on ourselves. Oftentimes, We are dead in Christ and raised in Christ. And these teachings, look what it says, they're human teachings. Verse 22, human precepts and teachings. And they're creating these regulations and they think 
that it's helping their heart. Remember, the root of their thing is righteousness. So you got to do these things in order to be righteous. Jesus doesn't make you righteous. You got to do these things also to make you righteous. But Paul says at the end of verse 23, but it's not stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's not doing the work that it's supposed to do. And you know how Paul is identifying this? They're doing all these things to be holy, yet it's pride that's being revealed as they work. It's showing up really obviously to them. And you can see it on display. I'll give you, I'll give you an application for us. Perhaps you have uh, an application on your phone that helps you not to view things that you shouldn't see because they're sinful. And let me say, I think apps can be helpful and helpful for accountability and and conversation and can be guards for us. But if our hope isn't an application, if we're putting our hope in the application to make us righteous, there's going to be a time where we grab a device that doesn't have the application on it. And then what? Right? The desire of the flesh bubbles up when we try to tend it to ourselves. It's Christ who gives the circumcision of the heart, and that's why we hold fast to him. That's the trick behind this in verse 23. Now, I do want to give us a few closing applications from the sermon today, a few things to be on guard about when it comes to legalism. And beloved, this is this was like a really hard sermon to think through and to to think about, because sometimes it's hard to think rightly about legalism. We often misdiagnose legalism, and, uh, and we're going to talk through a couple of ways that we can maybe be on guard just as we close out this sermon today. I think most of us in the room would say legalism is bad. Who would say legalism is good? I, I'd love to see it. Okay. Um, we would say that legalism is bad, right? Yet, Legalism is exactly oftentimes what we do. Even in our own flesh, we do this. So here's a few things to be on guard about. Legalism as a means of salvation. And that means this. You must do these things in order to be saved. Or let me say it another way. You must do these things in order to be approved by God. Beloved, this is a completely void understanding of the grace of God. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own work. This is not our own doing. Oftentimes we think that we have to do these things or or my God's not going to love me or I need to do these things in order that he would, 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 would approve me for righteousness. And that's not the truth. You are approved already in Christ, Colossians 1.12. He has qualified you. Look for no other qualification. Perhaps you came from a Catholic background, or perhaps you came from a legalistic Baptist background, or perhaps you're alive and you're human and you set up traps in your own heart. Whatever your circumstance is, and that's all of us in the room, nobody left unattended in that one, we must consider our propensity to feel the need we must do something. Beloved, guard against that because Christ has completed the work in full. And if you don't know that truth, I would love to talk to you about that truth. Legalism as a means to follow additional rules and regulations. So this is a little bit different than salvation legalism. 
But instead of walking in the commandments of God in obedience, we add more rules and we kind of get confused as to what we should do and what we shouldn't do. If you have time today, I would encourage you to go read Romans 14. Because Paul is literally unpacking for them. You know, some people were okay with drinking wine, some people weren't. Some people were okay with uh, adhering to the Sabbath and other people weren't. The conscience, Paul's point in Romans 14, it, it, it binds individuals. And so we're not to pass judgment on on those things. The problem is when we start saying, I don't think you should drink, and therefore you shouldn't drink. That's where you start binding a legalistic requirement that is adding something to the scripture that is actually not there. Because in Romans 14, Paul says, hey, whether you, are, whether you adhere to a dietary law or whether you adhere to a day, it doesn't matter. They're all equal in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, whatever it is you do, do it all for the glory of God. He ends Romans 14 by saying, hey, walk together in love. Certain times, even if you think it's okay to participate in something, it might not be good for your brother. And so it should all be considered by observing the gospel of Christ, what is good for our brother or our sister and how they are walking with Christ Love is a great replacement for legalism. We are not bound to these things anymore. We're actually bound to Christ. And then we're able to be free with our lives. This is true freedom. True freedom is not doing whatever you want. True freedom is being able to say, I'm not held by anything in this life. I submit to Christ in all things, and therefore, I can be a rook. If If you know chess, you can be a rook. That means whatever's in front of you, you can just change whatever you're gonna do. Because you're not bound to the law. Paul says these are disputable matters. And if they're disputable matters, they're not law binding. Okay, I want us to to consider that. There's a danger in this. And the danger is because we begin to trust our own things that we've set up for ourselves rather than Christ who saved us. And the other danger is because we're doing certain disciplines or certain things, we think we're actually righteous and we begin to hold ourselves above our brother there's a danger in this as well these are things that we must be on guard about and beloved let me just say this we we are to to be able to make good judgments and behavior uh, good judgments based on behavior i want to make sure that we recognize that that god's word has told us thou shalt not kill you should not steal. We do this because God tells us this, not because man does. But in this, we can see how love is actually interpreted. We don't kill because we're called to be our brother's keeper, just as Christ has been our keeper. We don't steal from our brother because we have been given grace and therefore we can give grace or give the shirt off our back or whatever the context is. We're not held to these things any longer. And then finally, and it's the thing that I think we can get trapped up most in, is a posture of legalism that reveals a sinful posture, a boasting posture. You can have the right doctrine. You can have the right understanding of the gospel. You can even say, I know I'm not supposed to add to regulations, but if we have a spirit of oppression or rule-keeping and we are not serving and loving, 
that can be incredibly oppressive and legalistic as well because we are revealing a motive that has us elevated over a brother or a sister. And that is wrong as well. We are to love and serve our neighbors. We are called to call out sin, by the way. Did you know that? We're actually called to call out sin. We always say, do not pass judgment on someone for their life. But Matthew 7 says, don't do that until you've actually dealt with the log that's in your own eye first. And once you've dealt with the log, which is confession and repentance of your own sin, then you can deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye. But this is done in love. That's a posture of love. If we're just going and not dealing with the speck in our, or the log in our own eye and we're just pointing to the speck, that's a do not pass judgment. That's a wrong form of judgment. But we see Paul elsewhere saying, I don't judge people outside the church. I judge people in the church. 1 Corinthians 5. I do this because I want them to, to know God and to love God and to walk with him. We have to be careful not to be legalistic. And we also have to be careful not to be faithful in the church today. We see Paul, who, the very same guy who says, do not practice these things, this legalism. He's also the one that goes to Peter in Galatians 2, and he's like, why are you withdrawing from the table? Why are you leaving the Gentile brothers you're eating with because you're afraid of the circumcision party? We also have to remember, that's a loving thing that he did to, to Peter because Peter is supposed to be loving both to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And he retracted and he was loving to, to neither at that time and found himself caught in a legalistic moment. This is a lot. I get that. It's a lot of teaching today. I get that. But it's also something that we have to consider. What, is, what are you adding to Christ today? Where, where is the gospel of Christ not sufficient for you? Perhaps there's things that even mindsets that you have that you're doing. I have to do these things in order to be approved by God. And it would be good of you to confess this to the Lord and ask him to make your heart and your mind right by pleading with him and, and praying and asking. These steps are going to be open for you. Perhaps you're holding some, uh, something against a brother because you don't like the way that they're living, but it's a disputable matter. And they're, and they're still doing it faithfully. We're not, we're not, just because you, anybody that has a conviction to drink a glass of wine, we still have a call not to be a drunkard or a glutton, Proverbs 23. We still have responsibility. But we're not bound by any of these things. Where are you today? I just ask you that as we consider the gospel, holding fast to Christ who is sufficient for these things and anything that's binding our hearts. Beloved, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you do work on our hearts today? Would your word be planted and reveal our sin to us, areas where we're not trusting in Christ, but we're trusting in ourself? God, would you work in the hearts of people who don't know you, that they would know you? God, would you work in the hearts of people that know you, turning us back to you, or we have perhaps gone astray. Father, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.